You're listening to Around Comics, episode 155. Listening to another Monday edition of Around Comics, the Comic Culture Podcast. I'm Christopher Neesman, and I'll be your guide for the next hour plus of comic book news, information, and entertainment. As we told you last week, this is our month of heroes. Around Comics is partnering with the Comics Podcast Network and the Hero Initiative to present a series of interviews from now to the end of the year highlighting the Hero Initiative. And we're asking all of our listeners to donate to the Hero Initiative. And if you do, just uh, drop us a line, let us know, and we'll mention you on the show. If you're interested in checking out some of the other podcasts that are partnering with us, I, I highly suggest it. And you can find the Comics Podcast Network by going to comicspodcast.com. And as far as donating to the Hero Initiative, it really couldn't be easier. Just go to aroundcomics.com, and on the homepage, you'll find a PayPal button. You can donate directly through there with PayPal. If you'd like to make a donation with a different form of payment, or if you want to find out more about the Hero Initiative, you can go to heroinitiative.org. And we're certainly not asking for huge or even minimum donations uh, just to give you an idea, if every Around Comics listener donated just the cost of one comic book, you would make a huge difference in the life of a veteran creator. On last week's episode, you heard Tim Seeley talking with Brian Polito, and you can certainly go back and check that interview out if you haven't had a chance yet. Coming up on this episode, you'll have part one of our talk with Denny O'Neill. We get you ready for the week ahead with new single issue, trade paperback, and DVD releases. Also, go over the week's events in Wired Wire comic book news. Tom Caters is back as the Answer Man, and Will Pfeiffer and Jeremy Mullins give their DVD and webcomic recommendations. All that and more is next on Around Comics. Denny O'Neill has made a huge impact on comics, both as a writer and an editor. From his socially relevant writings with artist Neil Adams in the early 70s on such titles as Green Lantern, Green Arrow, to his accomplishments as an editor and group editor on Batman, Denny O'Neill both pushed the envelope on the types of stories that mainstream comics were telling and helped shape the way that we think and feel about many modern-day characters such as Batman, The Question, and many more. Around Comics is proud to present part one of our conversation with comics legend Denny O'Neill. Denny, welcome yeah. aboard, and thank you very much for spending some time with us. Oh, happy to do it. How is semi-retirement uh, treating someone that was so productive in their career? Well, it took some getting used to. Um, 
According to Mary Fran, it took me about a year to decompress. I mean, I, I knew that for years, I, probably true of almost any editor, I was uh, running largely on adrenaline. But uh, it's, it's comfortable. I'm very busy at the moment because I have a kind of unforgiving deadline on a book project. But in general, I work a couple of hours a day and pursue other interests, and it's a very, very pleasant life. I know that you came up as a writer before your editing career, and you still write quite a bit even to this day. Does that just kind of become part of, of who you are, that just part of your day is that you sit down in front of a keyboard at some point? Uh, yeah, I, I found out years ago that it were, the writing thing is more than a way to keep food on the table, though it was uh, certainly that. But uh, right after I started editing at DC in 86, uh, I really didn't need to, to do the writing anymore. I mean, I had a salary, I had an income, and found after about six months uh, that I was wanting to do it. Well, I've been telling stories, I think, since I was six or seven years old. Certainly wasn't paid for them back then. So I think that that's, that's pretty deep in me, uh, the urge to, you know, engage in that particular form of expression. At, at what point in your life did, and you said that you, you kind of started writing stories around six or seven, when did you know that you wanted to write as, as a living? Oh, I don't think I, I I was clear about that until I started doing it. I mean, I minored in creative writing in college, but I did not understand exactly what they were trying to teach me. It seemed to me it was the same course repeated six times. And I now think that maybe they assumed that writers were going to be maybe teachers who wrote on weekends or as an avocation. A couple of us, I think, had in mind really doing this. Uh, I, I think when I left college, I thought I was pretty much finished with fiction, but I did glom onto journalism pretty quickly. And just this weird set of coincidences and odd circumstances got me into comics and writing fiction again. Yeah, you didn't even really know that you were going to write comics or didn't even really desire to write comics, really kind of until you got the job doing it. Yeah, I didn't know there was such a job. And for a lot of years, there probably wasn't for all practical purposes. I mean, you know that comics went into about a 10-year eclipse. And new people weren't coming into the field. In fact, lots of people were getting out of it. Uh, so, you know, coming from a kind of middle-class background in the Midwest, you didn't know any writers. That didn't seem to be a thing that real people did. Uh, journalism, yeah. I mean, some of my relatives, I think, I was uh, making my living about 10 or 12 years as a writer, and my father uh, thought maybe I would want to open a store and do the writing on weekends. And it was just that it was outside their experience. Nobody they knew had, you know, making a living was going to a factory or a store or an office. 
it wasn't sitting out in front of a typewriter. Sure, where you grew up, uh, St. Louis, it was uh, going and working at the brewery, probably. Yeah, well, I, give, I come from a uh, family that owned a small grocery store in a middle-class neighborhood. But, you know, that was the environment. That was what people knew. And also, of course, our parents were coming out of the Depression, and I think they were probably more aware than we were of uh, the possibility of economic disaster. I I was very unfocused. I taught for a while. I don't know that I ever had any intention to do that very much long term. I just got out of the Navy and didn't really have any direction to my life at all. Well, you were working the the crime beat in that in that crime infested city of of Cape Girardeau, Missouri, and <laughs> and through a through a, a series of events, uh, Roy Thomas uh, got you introduced to the, the the Marvel writing test. Is that correct? Yeah, I one of my jobs was to uh, fill the children's page on Saturday, uh, the Saturday paper, and. This was the summer. There were no school activities to write about. Uh, so I was just spending some time in bus stations and drugstores, bouncing back and forth between Cape Girardeau and St. Louis, and I saw comic books, and I think it dawned on me. I hadn't seen them for a long time, so I, you know, I big spender, I blew about 30, 45 cents, and uh, bought a few of them and uh, discovered that I really liked them and that they seemed to be better than the comic books I remembered. I was a huge comic book reader as a kid, I mean, as a six and seven year old kid. And then they just left my life uh, for a couple of decades, almost a couple of decades. Mm-hmm. I now know that's because, partially because they went into that eclipse and they stores that sold them either after the war went under or used the display space for something that had more profit. And then after after 52, 53, 54 comics were blamed for juvenile delinquency and all manner of other social ills. And they just weren't around. Uh, also, as a high school guy, I got interested in other things. Girls. Uh, girls. Girls was <laughs> way high at the top. And being in plays, which was the way you met girls. In fact, I eventually married the girl that I met uh, during a performance or a, a production of I Remember Mama. She's sitting upstairs at the moment. And, uh, you know, just the general mischief a teenager gets into, comics were just gone from my life. I didn't think about them. I had forgotten, I think, that I had ever liked them. They, they weren't there. I still read the, the strips in the uh, local newspaper. You know, it's it's funny you know, because that, that story we hear that kind of over and over again, and it's almost generational that, that comics come and go and I think it's kind of a, a testament to the medium that it has been so resilient that, that comics have been threatened to the point of extinction a lot of times this century and they just kind of keep reinventing themselves and coming back and you've seen that a couple times now 
Yeah, well, in the early 70s, I think most of us thought that by the end of that decade, we'd be making our living doing something else. To get back to the thought that I so vastly digressed from, uh, I did these stories, and Wise, whose parents subscribed to the paper, saw them. He got in touch with me. I did a third story on Roy, and he was the uh, co-editor of Alter Ego, which was, I think, by a fair margin, the best fanzine around. So, you know, one Sunday afternoon with my girlfriend on my way from St. Louis to Cape Girardeau, I stopped into Roy's apartment and I interviewed him. I think my girlfriend was bored, seriously bored. Uh, I was fascinated. This whole subculture, I had no idea, existed. Uh, so Roy and I became kind of friends, and when he took a job in New York, and that lasted two weeks, but because he was offered a job by Stan Lee, and then he sent me the Marvel Writers Test, and there was no reason on earth not to take it. I didn't expect anything to come of it, but sure. Four pages of art, add copy. I can do that. <laughs> and then a week later, he called and offered me a job. Well, I mean, you know, you're a, you're a, uh, a young guy in a small Missouri town. Uh, your job partially depends on the goodwill of that town, and because of a stupid prank, you've made an enemy of the whole police department. <laughs> uh, and somebody calls and offers you a chance to go to New York and work in comic books. How are you going to refuse that offer? So I packed up my car in the middle of the night and left. Wow. It's a, how, did, how did you adjust? I, I imagine even in the 60s that from Missouri to, to New York was a huge adjustment. How did, you, uh, how did you deal with that? Yeah, it was a culture shock. I, uh, from... Cape Girardeau, where there was no point in ever locking your door, to all I could afford in New York was two rooms on the Lower East Side. It is now the East Village, and it is possible to spend $10 million for an apartment there. In the 60s, it was a pretty bad neighborhood, pretty dangerous, but uh, it's what we could afford, so, you know, I, I think that by that time, I was married to the girlfriend, and I think she was from a little tiny town in central Missouri. And I think that that, that, that put a huge uh, strain on us that we probably didn't realize at the time. I mean, getting married is <laughs> traumatic enough, yeah. but then add to that going from this rural environment or semi-rural environment to the Lower East Side. Yeah, and, and you're taking a job, leaving a job for writing for a newspaper, and now you're writing comic books of all things. Whatever that is, yeah. yeah. Well, I can only imagine, you know. And, and talking about you know your, your early time at Marvel, uh, and I'm imagining that at that time, most of the stories had been, had been, been written by one man, and that, of course, being Stan Lee. Were you one of the first group of writers that kind of came in and, and took over some of these books, and were really the first people to write Marvel books that weren't Stan? Yeah, I think we were. I think of Roy and Steve Skates 
and myself as like the second generation. I was a very small second generation, but and we were the first guys to come into the field in as as writers anyway in, in a long time. And as you said, Stan was doing everything. It just, I mean, he's a phenomenal guy and was capable of, of staggering amounts of work, but it got to be too much even for him. So Steve Skates was hired, and after Steve, uh, Roy, and after Roy, me, and then uh, a very good guy named Ron White, dead quite a long time now, uh, followed me. By that time, I was freelance doing some journalism, writing for uh, Marvel, writing for Stan, uh, and also writing for Dick Giordano. Sure. Which, uh, uh, but you but you weren't uh, Denny or Dennis O'Neill whenever you were writing for uh, uh, for Charlton, and that's that's one of the one of my favorite pen names of all time is uh, is Sergius O'Shaughnessy. Stolen from Norman Mailer. <laughs> and you know, for a lot of people that may not know, um, can you explain why a lot of, of writers and artists of that of that time were working under pseudonyms? Well, because you were working for more than one company, and you weren't sure uh, if Editor B would like you working for Editor A. I now think it probably wouldn't have made any difference, sure. but at the time, I thought it might. And, and it's funny for even, you know, for a lot of artists that would almost have to change their styles so so those editors wouldn't know that they were working for, for other companies. Because there yeah, was, I think they know. made a, a stab at changing their styles. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was more, I think, that it, you, you, the editor A didn't want it acknowledged that his freelancer worked for editor B. It was even, I think, at that time, some rivalry within... The companies, you know, DC editor A had his stable of creative people, and DC editor B had better not poach on it. I I don't think that's changed from what I hear. I think it's reverted back to that. It was not a a very significant factor for most of the time that I was uh, editing the Batman line. I've heard that there have been some movement in well, jump forward here a little bit before we, we go back to, to Charlton in a second. But but surely you as an editor had to have certain guys that, that you knew that you could lean on if you really needed them, you know? Oh, sure. Uh, you try and keep a, a distance. But, yeah, part of it is I found that if I hired people that basically didn't need me as an editor except as a backup or a mistake catcher... It was like uh, casting a movie. Uh, Directors will tell you that cast it right, and that's 90% of your job. I hired people, I made some mistakes, but generally who agreed with me about the kind of work we should be doing, the kind of stories we should be telling, uh, the degree of professionalism we should insist on. And uh, then I just gave them the ballpark, you know, you can't do this, this or this, and everything else, go to it, and then tried to function, as I said, as their, uh, well, uh, my job as editor was largely to make the creative people look good. 
that's what I want from editors when I'm functioning as a writer. Don't let my spelling mistakes get through. Don't let this sentence that makes absolutely no sense get into print. Yeah, and, you know, and certainly the, the jobs of editors have changed over the years. We're talking uh, about the early years at Marvel when it was just kind of coming in and, and, and kind of picking up where, where Stan couldn't keep up with the volume of work. And, and then in, in the course of your career, it really kind of turned into managing continuity and making sure that, that you know, if, you, if you're working on four different Batman titles, that, that things are working in concert. I mean, that was, that was really kind of something that happened while you were the editor on that book. Or on that yeah, family. it was one of the huge changes. Um, Julie once said that uh, Julie Schwartz, when I used to talk to him on Thursday mornings, that uh, the job had gotten a lot more complicated. Uh, the, the rise of the direct market meant that we had to advertise the creative people, you know, months ahead of time, and there were potential financial problems if you didn't deliver the writers and artists that you'd advertise. So if one of those people really blew a deadline out of the water or became incapacitated or something like that, uh, it was up to the editor to work some kind of magic and try and deal with that. And then there was the matter of continuity, uh, which, again, when comic books were plot-driven, single-issue stories... Well, you know, this one ended and didn't make any difference which one came next. Uh, so, yeah, that, that added a whole dimension to the storytelling, but it also could make an editor's life very difficult. Sure, and that, that kind of uh, created for, for the franchise titles like Batman or the X-Men, you know, all the titles that, that had multiple titles within them created these group editors, which you were, for a very long time, the Batman group editor, and so that's kind of that continuity. Yeah, that. yeah when I started the Batman, well, I had Detective and Batman comics and two or four other titles. By the time I walked away from it six years ago, the Batman titles alone, I think, were 12, uh, 12 <laughs> monthly titles, and that did not count uh, graphic novels, miniseries, crossovers, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, and we'll jump around here a little bit. I want to go back because I, I did want to talk to you about your time at Charlton and, and more um, particularly your relationship with Dick Giordano. What kind of influence did he have on you as an editor whenever you would get into the editor's chair later? Dick was magic, and I couldn't do what he did. I don't know how he did it to this day. The only other editor I've ever worked with uh, that came close to Dick's magic was Louise Simonson. And in both cases, they, I don't remember ever getting a, a direction from either one. They never told me what to do, and yet in Dick's case, he got good work not only out of me, but everybody who worked for him for money that was much less than the other companies were paying. He kind of encouraged it out of you somehow. I don't understand that. I think it's sui generis. It's something that can't be taught. Sure. It's something that that he had with uh, Wheezy Simonson. It was you just, she was so nice you didn't want to disappoint her. 
I had a I had a boss that was very much like that, and it's uh, I found uh, it's the most effective way to manage people is to is to make them not want to disappoint you, and that's yeah, you and you want them to be happy to come to work, mm-hmm, sure. uh, not to be uh, you know dread that or dread whatever dealings they had to have with you. Sure. So I mean, like I I had three assistants for. Uh, like most of the last decade that I did Batman and they were so good and we were all so much in sync that if I had conked out they could any one of the three could have uh, taken over my spot without you know missing a beat and it made it a pleasure to come to work uh, to work with really enthusiastic creative people That that's what you know, we tried to, I think, create uh, among the Batman community, for want of a better word. I hated the idea of being a boss. And uh, parenthetically, I think people who desperately want to be the boss are exactly the people who shouldn't be the boss. Because it's somehow then about their own ego. They like they like messing with people's lives. I thought, geez, half the time I make a total mess of my own life. I, <laughs> I shouldn't presume to mess with anybody else's. I think that speaks a lot to uh, a lot to your character, and, and I've heard you talk about Dick Giordano very glowingly in the, in the past, and and you followed him to D.C. when when Charlton and, and I don't know what the the economic situation was at Charlton at the time, but but. Um, uh, Dick Giordano brought yourself and several other people to D.C., and that was kind of a culture shock for your uh, for you guys to go into into that environment from Charlton. Well, I had perceived D.C. as a closed shop. I mean, that was the old line company, and stupidly, it never occurred to me to go up there and look for work. I was more or less always looking for work. Uh, but, you know, so uh, Steve Skates and Garrett Friedrich, I think, and a, a few of us started uh, working for him. And then, again, I think I would go on Thursday morning. Uh, Charlton was based in Derby, Connecticut, but it had rented an office on Fifth Avenue in the 40s. So you'd go up there and you'd talk with the guy for 15 minutes and you'd have an assignment. Well, on one of those visits, he said, how would you like to do what you're doing now, but at about three times the money? Well, that was a pretty eloquent uh, <laughs> invitation. So uh, what had happened is that Dick had been hired by D.C., and I don't know if it was something he asked. Yeah, oh, I, I do know. Yeah, he brought along five of us. And I can't exactly speak for Steve and the others, but I think I thought, well, they've seen what good work we're doing for Charlton, and they, they want to get us aboard. <laughs> uh, I think they had no idea who we were. I've heard various versions of this story, and I don't know what to believe. It is possible that DC was in the process of denying work to the old-timers who had made what was apparently a very mild request for some help with um, health insurance. insurance. So 
uh, it was Paul Levitz who told me that story for a piece I was doing for a book publisher. And I said, well, you know, Paul, <laughs> if I put this in print, the company's going to look really bad. And he said, no, it's not, because it'll be an indicator to everybody how far we've come. Sure. We would never do that uh, today. As far as I was concerned, yeah, I mean, I was living with a non-working wife and a very small child in a slum. Three, th three the times the rate sounded good. <laughs> it yeah. was not, not much of a Had I known that I was a scab, oh, wow, what a moral crisis that would have been. And I don't know which way I would have jumped. But fortunately, I didn't know it for about 15 years. I want to talk to you a little bit about, about some of those early projects that you worked on with DC. Uh, one in particular, you worked on The Creeper, and I wanted to know if you had any sort of working relationship with Steve Ditko whenever you, were, you worked on The Creeper. Yeah, and it's one of the... I, I have some regrets attached to Steve Ditko, and uh, maybe The Creeper is the mildest of them. Uh, Steve, I, I think, is one of the... Uh, seldom acknowledged greats. I would love to work with him again, but I think in political and social matters, I don't think we could be further apart. And I don't think Steve is too much of a gentleman to ever complain, but I don't think he liked what I did with his characters. It, uh, I think he wa I mean, I, I handled the Creeper... Uh, semi-satirically, and I think Steve probably wanted it to be very straight on dead serious. Uh, wasn't too too big a sin against Steve there, but later, with the question, I totally changed uh, an awful lot about it. And much, much later, a colleague said, well, you know, if you're going to change it that much, why didn't you just create your own character from scratch? And that's a good question. Well, do, do you think that, that Ditko created uh, his Mr. A character? Which seemed, it seemed to have a lot of um, similarities with the question. Do you think that that was kind of his, his answer to the question? Uh, it may no. very well have been. I haven't seen Steve in, Jesus, uh, 15 years. And I haven't had a real conversation with him, I guess, in maybe a quarter of a century. So I don't know. And as I said, he's not the kind of guy who would complain or whine or, or jump up and down and say, you've sinned against me. Uh, he is a gentleman. But, uh, you know, you ask about being a writer earlier. I had been working for D.C. for about six months, and Paul Levitt said, it's time to write again, don't you think? I, I, I think I had been hired as a hyphen, as a writer-editor. And what was available was Captain Adam, who was fairly close to Superman and the kind of character I'm not comfortable with. And the question, well, that was the kind of character I was comfortable with, so I simply said, uh, yeah, I can do that, but I uh, I can't do Steve's version. And I think, well, the, the, the editor, Mike Gould, and I agreed on the changes I'd make. In retrospect, um, I don't know if I have a right to do that to Steve's vision. Uh, 
it just didn't occur to me at the time that it was ever going that, that it, it might bother him. Sure. And now I think, well, I don't know if it bothered him. I think it's a possibility. And that'll take care of part one of our discussion with Denny O'Neill. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, definitely come back next Monday for part two. We'll pick right back up in the conversation, talking about Denny's time as an editor and group editor of Batman. In the meantime, please remember to go and give to the Hero Initiative. That's why uh, Denny was so gracious to spend time with us. So even if it's 5 or $10, whatever, just uh, go and give what you can. And happy holidays. This is Wire to Wire Comic Book News, top headlines for the week of November 26, 2007. Dynamite Entertainment released images and information announcing the debut issue of Don Chin's Adolescent Radioactive Black Belt Hamsters by writer Keith Champagne and art by Tom Nguyen. Scheduled for a January release, Adolescent Radioactive Black Belt Hamsters No. 1 will be available in full color with covers by Tom Nguyen and Michael Avon Oming. Comics guru Mike Mignola teams up with rising star Josh Dysart for one of the most intriguing and revealing tales in the Hellboy universe, BPRD 1946, is the story of the elderly days of the Bureau and the quest for answers that explain, among other things, the enigmatic Hellboy's apocalyptic origin. In the wake of the Second World War, Professor Trevor Broom, occult investigator and guardian of the infant Hellboy, founded the Bureau of Paranormal Research and Defense to investigate and defuse the remains of the Axis sophisticated occult warfare projects and potential Soviet threats. Now, outfitted with a small band of war-weary Allied soldiers, Broom begins to unravel the mystery of the Nazi occult bureau's greatest and most threatening initiatives, Project Vampire Sturm. BPRD 1946 No. 1 hits the streets on January 9, 2008 with an SRP of 299. 
The judging panel has been announced for the 2008 Will Eisner Comic Industry Awards. This Blue Ribbon Committee will be selecting the nominees to appear on the Eisner Award ballot. Awards Administrator Jackie Estrada will be sending out the 2008 call for entries in mid-December. The judges will meet in early April to select the nominees that will go on the Eisner Awards ballot. The nominees will then be voted on by professionals in the comic book industry, and the results will be announced in a gala award ceremony on Friday, July 25th at Comic-Con International San Diego. This year's judges, chosen by Jackie Estrada, are John Davis, Director of Pop Culture Markets for Bookazine Magazine, Paul D. Filippo, professional science fiction author with over 25 books to his credit, Adam Freeman, co-owner of Brave New World Comics in Santa Clarita, Jeff Jensen, senior writer for Entertainment Weekly, and Eva Valen, supervising children's librarian for the Alameda Free Library in Alameda, California. Warner Premier, DC Comics, and Warner Brothers Animation are set to release the all-new original movie Justice League The New Frontier on February 26, 2008 on DVD, HD DVD, and Blu-ray disc distributed by Warner Home Video. Based on the graphic novel by Darwin Cook and produced by Michael Gogoon and animation legend Bruce Timm, Justice League The New Frontier is the epic tale of the founding of the Justice League. The animated film written by Stan Berkowitz features an incredible celebrity-laden voice cast including David Boreanaz, Brooke Shields, Lucy Lawless, Neil Patrick Harris, Miguel Ferrer, Kara Sedgwick, Jeremy Sisto, and Kyle McLaughlin, and will be available on DVD for $19.98. There will also be a two-disc special edition DVD for $24.98, which contains additional bonus features, including a documentary about the pathology of the supervillain, and three bonus episodes from the Justice League animated series selected by Bruce Timm. The original movie will also be available on demand and pay-per-view, as well as available for download on February 26, 2008. Various news sites and bloggers reported this week that they had received a mysterious notebook on Thursday, offering no return address on the mailers, only a city of Portland, Oregon. A stamp inside the front cover read simply property of R. Montoya. That would, of course, be Rene Montoya, former Gotham City detective, currently The Question, and currently starring in 52 Aftermath, Crime Bible, Five Lessons of Blood from DC Comics. The notebook was reported to be well used with dozens of pages filled with handwritten notes from Montoya's investigation into the dark faith behind the crime bible, as well as stuff full with mysterious clues and scraps of information. Some of the more interesting tidbits included a page from the 1938 translation of the crime bible by Professor Malcolm Fitzgerald, University of Metropolis, with Renee's handwritten notes about discovering a key for a cipher at the bottom. Most likely, the cipher is related to the code that serves as the border for the first page of crime bible number one, which itself reprints a page from the Bible. On the back of the Crime Bible page, a collection of symbols important to the dark faith, as well as a mock-up of the magical knife used in ceremonies and sacrifices. What appears to be a security photo of the question, a concert poster for the band Dark Side's Bitch that, turns, as it turns out, has their own MySpace page, a handwritten lyric sheet for Ashes All Fall Down written on stationery from Hotel Monarch in Coast City by singer-guitarist Serration, a ticket for a Coast City concert for Dark Side's Bitch, a set list for Dark Side's Bitch with notes by Montoya, a coroner's report for Walter Mintasa, a.k.a. Serration, who died due to an overdose, a toe tag for Walter Mintasa, two shell casings from handgun ammunition, a small envelope with what appears to be pills. Renee's notes suggest that there are discrepancies in regards to the cause of death. Was he shot or did he overdose? Montoya's notes suggest dissension in the band also. An airline ticket for Renee Montoya on Ferris Global Airways with notes that Renee went to Barcelona and other mysterious things. 
At his blog, editor Tom Brevoort debuted the new look of the publisher's Fantastic Four, which will start with issue number 554, the debut issue of the series' new creative team, Mark Miller and Brian Hitch. Brevoort wrote of the cover, Designed to have more the flavor of a mainstream magazine than a typical comic book, Fantastic Four once again looks sleek and progressive and cutting edge on the racks. In the same way as when the Ultimates books were first introduced, Fantastic Four will not be mistaken for anything else we're publishing. After helping to give the look to Miss Marvel and Planet Hulk at Marvel for the past few years, artist Aaron Lepresti is packing his bags and moving across town. The artist and DC have confirmed that Lepresti has signed an exclusive with the company, and his first work, yet unnamed, will appear in early 2008. Lepresti's last Marvel work will be February's Miss Marvel number 24, and the artist expressed that his tenure on the title with writer Brian Reed was nothing but fun. The ongoing saga of Z-Cult FM continues to unfold, but it appears that an end may be in sight. Last week, at the request of Marvel Comics, Z-Cult announced they would remove all Marvel-related torrents from their trackers. They also would institute a new seven-day policy for all new DC Comics-related torrents, even though at the time DC had made no request. In addition, while it was reported that Slave Labor Graphics had given permission to Z-Cult to offer their comics within the trackers on the site, it later was determined that that report was false, and SLG had made no such statement. This week, Forum Administrator Surge posted a letter sent to the site from DC Comics requesting the removal of all torrents related to DC material from their site. In addition, Top Cow Studios also requested the removal of their material, noting that Top Cow offers legal downloads on their backlist through Direct2Drive. With DC, Marvel, Topco, and other torrents no longer available on Z-Cult, Surge noted in a letter that for the time being, they will stay in operation and likely will evolve the site. And finally, in a letter to advisors, F&W Publications has announced that it will cease publication of the trade magazine Comics and Games Retailer with the February 2008 issue. The retailer-orientated publication will end with issue number 191, which will actually ship in January of 2008. For more than 15 years between cluttered covers that scream trade magazine, Comics and Games Retailer covered the world of pop culture retailing with columns written by leading independent retailers and industry luminaries. F&W has not yet decided the fate of the Comics and Games retailer website. That is Wire to Wire comic book news. Good night and happy reading. This portion of Around Comics is brought to you by Ape Entertainment. And now available from Ape is the Fablewood Anthology Volume 1. It's a lavish 144-page original graphic novel containing 13 complete fantasy stories and featuring the art of invincible artist Ryan Otley, as well as alumni from Flight and Pop Gun anthologies. Fablewood covers a variety of themes within the fantasy genre, from slice of life to sword and sorcery. No fantasy fan should go without. For previews of some of the amazing art in the Fablewood Anthology and tons of other ape goodness, visit our friends at www.apecomics.com. Now let's get you ready for the week ahead with new trade paperback releases. Here is Collected Comics Library's Chris Marshall. So for the past two months or so, I've tried to give you all the trade information I can within five minutes, and I've decided to come up with a title for my segment here on Around Comics. So I'm titling it This Monday's Trade 5. 
Hope you like it because it's probably going to stick. So here we go. All the trade information that you can get on my show in about 45 minutes condensed down into five minutes. And let's start off with the new releases of the week, shall we? Coming out December 5th, 2007 from DC, we've got Batman Superman Saga of the Super Sons for $20. This collects all the various oh, Elseworlds, early Elseworlds stuff, if you want to call it, of World's Finest Comics and their team-ups and their kids and everything. And if you're really into the Silver Age, this is kind of a must-have for you guys. We also have Danger Girl Body Shots for $13.00. And two books are not on the preliminary list that I get from Comics List, but will be up later today on Monday over at Diamond or Comic List. Either one. Uh, the Brave and the Bold Volume 1, Lords of Luck hardcover. We are expecting that out. I know I announced that last week. It's being pushed back week to week to week, it seems. And the all-new Adam Future Past trade for 15 collects the all-new Adam 7 through 11. Over at Marvel, we've got Fantastic Four Visionaries John Byrne, Volume 8, The Trade. This is for $25.00. New Excalibur Volume 3, Battle of the Britons trade for $25. What If Classic Volume 4 for $25. And Marvel Adventures Hulk Volume 1, Misunderstood Monster Digest for only $7, as the digests usually are. A couple of books that we are expecting out from Marvel this week that are not on the Diamond slash Comic list this uh, preliminary list anyway, is Marvel Masterworks The Amazing Spider-Man Volume 9, this going into December now is being uh, delayed by two weeks. This is also the variant 86. Uh, Silver Surfer Requiem premiere hardcover, kind of like Silver Surfer The End. Uh, this collects that four-issue series for $20. And Punisher War Journal Volume 2 going out west premiere hardcover, uh, that is for $20 as well. Another book we keep on waiting for and it's being pushed, pushed back is Marvel Adventures Fantastic Four Volume 1. This is the hardcover and collects Marvel Adventures FF 1 through 12 for $25. From Dark Horse, we know that this book is coming out, Excess Hybrid Volume 3 for 11 From IDW, we have uh, I Am Legend, the trade paperback for $20, just in time for the movie with Will Smith. From Top Shelf, we've got Owly Volume 4, Don't Be Afraid, the trade for $10. From Tomorrow's Publishing, Silver Age Sci-Fi Companion Softcover, for 20 and from Wizard, we have the new Wizard Magazine 2008 movie Spectacular that is for 6 bucks. Just a couple of quick news items. I announced last week that the Black Dossier is selling out. Well, so is Marvel Zombies vs. Army of Darkness hardcover. That is going into a second printing, as well as the Heroes hardcover, the, both the Alex Ross and the Jim Lee. So you may want to jump on those on eBay if you like first editions like I do. And according to IDW, they have announced that this summer we're going to get a hardcover of the Scorchy Smith comic strip. If you're not familiar with this strip, it's an aviation strip from, from the 1930s. And this volume showcases Scorchy with the art of Noel Sickles. And because of his legacy on the strip from 1933 through 1936, it allowed the character to endure until 1961. It's going to be a deluxe oversized 352-page book including 60 pages of bonus material. And it's going to be part of their Library of American Comics imprint that they have going on over there. It's funny, this book was announced about a month ago, but nobody's really picked up on it until the official announcement. But if you guys listen to the Collected Comics Library, well, you already know this book is coming out. Real quick, finally, the guys who brought you the graphic novel 
The 9-11 report is going to do a sequel. It's going to come out this summer, and it's going to be called the 9-11, after 9-11, America's War on Terrorism, 2001 through blank, which means 2001 through today. It's going to be 160 pages, full color, 6 by 9 graphic novel in both paperback for 17 bucks and a hardcover for 30 and it's going to be out August of 2008. So that is this Monday's Trade 5 for Around Comics. I'm Chris Marshall, Collected Comics Library. See you next week. Chris Marshall is the host of the Collected Comics Library podcast. You can find the podcast, release schedules, and checklist of everything collected at CollectedComicsLibrary.com. Let's uh, get you ready for the week ahead in new single-issue releases. I'm actually going to shorten up the highlighted list and spend a little bit more time talking about a couple of them. So uh, please note that this is uh, very abbreviated. It is just a highlight of what is coming out this week. And also shipping dates may change, so uh, hopefully these will be available to you in your local comic shop. First of all, from Dark Horse, we have Buffy the Vampire Slayer number nine. This is the conclusion of the Faith storyline that uh, Brian K. Vaughn has been writing. It's uh, it's been a great series for longtime Buffy the Vampire Slayer fans, which I am one of. I don't know how well it would have read if you're not a Buffy fan. I guess we'll have to ask uh, some of the folks around the round table what they thought of it. But uh, definitely, if you are a fan of the Whedonverse, it has been well worth it. And uh, number nine, once again, will conclude the Faith storyline written by Brian K. Vaughn. Also coming out from Dark Horse is Lobster Johnson, the Iron Prometheus, number four of five. This is the penultimate issue of the Lobster Johnson miniseries. This is one that I know that Sal and I have both enjoyed quite a bit. So hopefully the series is meeting a lot of sales success, and we will see more of Lobster Johnson and that cast of characters from creator Mike Minnie in the future. With this series concluding, I'm sure that Dark Horse will release a trade of this. If you haven't been reading The Iron Prometheus, highly suggest it, and as soon as the trade is available, I'm sure that our buddy Chris Marshall will let everybody know. From DC Comics, uh, one that I've been looking forward to for quite a while, the all-new Adam number 18 hits stores this week. Besides the fact that it is a good story and one of my favorite books that's on the shelves, Around Comics friend Mike Norton is the artist on it. It is, of course, written by Gail Simone. And I will tell Around Comics listeners that if you pick up the all-new Adam number 18 this week, you'll get to see Around Comics Brian Salazar, Tom Caters, and myself, Chris Neesman, in the pages of the all-new Adam. We're not named, but we're there. You just have to look hard. Also from DC is Jonah Hex, number 26, Justice League of America, number 15, as Dwayne McDuffie and Ed Bennis uh, conclude the Unlimited storyline, and fans of both Kingdom Come and the JSA continue their geek fest in JSA number 11. 
I picked out a couple books of interest coming out from Vertigo this week. First of all is The Exterminators, number 24. This sees the return of Tony Moore on art duties as he uh, slides over from Fear Agent. And uh, the solicit says that this is going to be a one-shot story. So anyone that hasn't checked out The Exterminators to this point, first of all, shame on you. And uh, second of all, this would probably be a great issue to just pick up and try out as it is a one-shot. Next is the much-anticipated Northlanders number 1. This is Brian Wood's take on Vikings in 1000 AD. Uh, the preview reads it as a type of prodigal son returning to the homeland and finds his friends and family enslaved. And we find out what sacrifices it takes to turn a returning prince into a king. So I'm certainly looking forward to the bloody Viking tale of the Northlanders. This is a very heavy week, for me anyway, with Image Comics. As we see Crawl Space, Triple X Zombies, number two. This is the Rick Remender, Tony Moore, and Kieran Dwyer series about uh, porno zombies in the 70s. As, uh, the first issue was a lot of fun, so if you enjoyed that, the second issue is hitting shelves this week. We also see Dynamo 5, number nine. I uh, got the first trade paperback, which is a great value at uh, $9.99 for seven issues, and I'm now hooked on the series and uh, definitely look forward to hearing from Jay Ferber on a future episode of Around Comics. Also debuting this week is The Overman, number one of five. This is uh, done by Around Comics listener Shane White, and I've seen previews of this. You should certainly check out The Overman. It is a beautiful book and uh, has a great espionage mystery twist to it. So definitely check out The Overman, number one. Uh, we also see Suburban Glamour, number two of four. This is the Jamie McKelvey-created series that we've talked about in the past. A lot of fans of both Suburban Glamour and Phonogram out there. And uh, one that Sal has turned me on to, The Sword, number three. This is by the Luna Brothers. So that'll wrap up Image, a very good week by them. And finally, from Marvel Comics, we see the House of M Avengers, number two of five. Uh, you heard a couple weeks back about this on top of the stack. It's done by the creative team of Christos Gage and Danny Perkins, them guys from Union Jack. Really enjoyed their take on the House of M universe and definitely look forward to the rest of the series and hopefully more return trips to that alternate universe. We also see Matt Fraction's The Order, number five. And yes, Hell Has Frozen Over, The Ultimates, Volume 3, Number 1, hits comic shelves this week. And you get your choice of the White variant, the Gatefold Heroes variant, the Gatefold Villains variant, or the Dynamic Forces variant. Buy one of them, not all of them, please. That'll take care of single-issue releases for this week. Hope you have a great time at the local comic shop. I'm living up near Fresno the power 99 Won't you come and pay a visit I'm here all the time I'm still here waiting Waiting
Last week, we were thrilled to be able to sit down for a very brief conversation with comics legend Alan Moore. We got to talk about several of his upcoming projects as well as a special announcement. Around Comics is extremely happy to welcome Alan Moore. Alan, hello, and how are you doing? Hi, it's my pleasure. Testing, testing. Hello, come in. Testing, testing. I think we're on, John. We've got a frequency. Yeah, I think we're through, we're through. Excellent, excellent. This is the Quiet Panologist at Work, A to Z of British Comics. Hooray! Letter A. Hang on, John. Oh. Are you, have you got a letter what? A? I have got a letter A. Have you got a letter A? I've got a letter A as well. What's your, what's your letter A? My letter A is Sir Alan of Moore. Alan Moore. Alan Moore? Yeah. Who's he? He's a, apparently, he's a writer. Ooh. He wrote things like Watchmen, V Vendetta. His first comic work was at Marvel UK, writing for the Hulk comic. I didn't know that. Here's another fact that you may not know about him. He was born November 18th, 1953, in Northampton. And I've got a friend who lives in Northampton. My granddad lived in Northampton. Really? Small world, you see, innit? Hang on, he was born in 1953. How old does that make him? Uh, In excess of 50. Blimey. And he was expelled from school. Yeah. At 17 years old for dealing LSD. Was he? Yeah. He's a naughty lad, isn't he? And he's got a beard. He's got a beard and he's a practising magician. Mm. And I think he's slightly overrated. <laughs> I don't think you could say that. All right. I don't think that's true either. No. But he's generally a lovely person who gets on well with everyone he meets. I've heard that rumour. Yep. So if you don't know who Alan Moore is, or if you haven't read any Alan Moore... Then there you go. There's your little quick information nugget. Info nugget. Go and read Watchmen. Go and read The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. And then come back. Yeah. Come back. Let us know. <laughs> We've got a quiz. Okay. All right. <laughs> have you got an A? What, have I got an A for the A to Z of British comics? Yep. I have, yeah. Mine is A-A-M, Marcosia. Ah. Yeah. So what does A-A-M stand for? I don't think it stands for anything. Isn't it Associated Arts or something like that? I think it's Associated Arts. <laughs> right, OK, Marcosia. that's good. I'm no, glad you've done your research. I ain't done any research. Marcosia is a British comic book publishing company, John. Really? Yeah. They're one of the biggest UK independent publishers. Really? Yeah, they are, yeah. They publish such titles as Starship Troopers, The Witness, The Lexian Chronicles, Smoke and Mirror, The Hunger... And recently, they've published Kong, King of Skull Island, which debuted at number 300 of the most top-selling, top-selling comics in the top-selling comics. That's quite an achievement. <laughs> the top-selling comics of the top-selling comics list. That's right, in the top-selling comic list, which is quite an achievement for the UK publisher. And recently, they've had the graphic novel come out of Beowulf, not a film adaptation, another one. All right. Mm. <laughs> Very good. But their premier book at the moment is Hopefuls Issue 1, which has just come out. And it's written by Tony Lee and drawn by Dan Boltwood, which is selling incredibly well and is a really good comic book. It is really good. Okay, so today's A to Z was A. And what was yours, John? Alan Moore. And mine was A.A.M. Marcosia. We'll now return you back to your regularly scheduled programme. The A to Z of British Comics was brought to you by a quiet panelologist at work. You can reach us at www.panelologist.com. That's right. 
next week we'll do B. Let's do B. Not now. Okay. Well, thanks very much, folks. It's been a very pleasant experience. We must do it again sometime. Aha. Fooled you there at the top. Well... Probably not, but we gave it a try. Uh, I'd like to uh, give a special thanks to Scott Hines over at Fanboy Radio for uh, letting me use a little Alan Moore audio there at the beginning of that, and the Quiet Panelologists. I'm very excited about this. You're going to be hearing from them from hopefully uh, B through Z. We've got uh, got a few in the can already, and I can tell you that B, C, and D are well worth the listen, so it's great to have the Panelologists on board with our Monday episodes. So John and Matt. Thank you very much. Looking forward to hearing more from you. And seriously, if you haven't checked out the Quiet Penologist at Work, uh, check them out through iTunes or whatever podcatcher you use. They are a, a really good, good group of guys, and they have a lot of fun talking about comics. Every week, Jeremy Mullins brings one of our most popular segments to Around Comics. Keeps us updated on what is happening in the world of webcomics. And for this week's recommendation, here is Jeremy Mullins. This week, I'd like to recommend Toothpaste for Dinner by Drew. Yes, just Drew. He, he doesn't list his last name or anything. And he doesn't have to, because he's a webcomic superstar on par with, like, a Madonna or a Cher. So, in my opinion, the one-name thing is totally appropriate, because Toothpaste for Dinner can boast some seriously impressive numbers. 32.5 million hits per month, and the feature has been updated daily at midnight Eastern Time since August 28, 2003. Those numbers are well-earned. I'll go on a limb and say that Toothpaste for Dinner is the funniest single panel comic on the web. It features weird, wiggly, squiggly, oddball drawings of people, and it's just this ugly, amoeba-like style, and the humor is disjointed, surreal, and absurdist. Um, and as of this recording... There are 2,178 Toothpaste for Dinner comics on the site. The humor is very consistent, and I feel very confident recommending it to you this week. The URL is toothpasteforddinner.com. For Around Comics, I'm Jeremy W. Mullins. Jeremy Mullins is a professor of sequential art at the Savannah College of Art and Design. You can find more about the school and their programs of study at www.scad.edu. Some folks find that their role in life is to fail at everything they try. While other folks see, but not like me, there's one thing that they're damn good at. Hey, it's Answer Man. It's where you ask and I tell. The I being Tom. The tell being the answer to your question. The where, it's my kitchen. The when, Sunday morning. It's icy out, snowing. 
Very dreary. Very hard to do this, actually. I, I was considering just lying in bed all day. Uh, you know, once my girlfriend left town, I, I just, it's hard to like get up on Sundays, but she used to make me go to brunch, and now that I don't have that, uh, I, I have no motivation. So this this has replaced brunch for me. So let's uh, let's get rolling with the question right away. And it comes this week from a Mr. Travis Sternberg, who asks, Dear Mr. Caters, side note, anyone in the future who wants to ask an Answer Man question, please refer to me as Mr. Caters or Sir Answer Man. Continue on. I was wondering if you could be so benevolent to share some of your views with us and what you like and dislike about each of the four flashes. And not to insult your everlasting wisdom, by the four I mean Jay Garrick, Barry Allen, Wally West, and Bart Allen. Many regards, Travis. Well, Travis, thanks for asking me a question that I can definitely wax poetic about. Uh, the Flash, if you you know listen to this show, is my favorite character. The Wally West Flash being you know, probably the favorite of all the Flashes. But I, I do have an affection for all of them. Uh, going back to Jay Garrick, who's the Golden Age Flash. Uh, the, what I love about him, and uh, this sort of extends to a lot of the other Golden Age uh, DC characters, is his sort of portrayal as a father figure. Uh, due to his um, powers, he was never able to have children of his own. So he sort of took Barry on as sort of like a... Uh, he was a father figure to him. Wally, he was sort of a grandfather figure to him. Bart, he helped raise Bart. So I always sort of love that aspect that uh, Jay was so willing to give up his own time to people that he didn't necessarily have any familial obligation to. Uh, one thing I sort of always didn't like about him isn't so much the character, it's how people draw him sometimes. Uh, sometimes the JSA older characters get drawn like uh, a 30-year-old guy with white hair, which always sort of bothered me, and that's why I've, sort of, I've enjoyed the Dale Eaglesham uh, drawn issues recently, because he actually draws Jay like he's a man in his 60s, which he is. And it doesn't mean he can't be shown with incredible powers or doing incredible things, it actually makes it more, I think, visually interesting and it fits with the, the tone of the character. Uh, now, Barry Allen, who was the Silver Age Flash, uh, you know, I love his stories based more on a couple of things. My, my love for Silver Age stories and their sort of goofiness and their weirdness and all the weird stuff. And the, the Flash was a real magnet for that during the Barry Allen. You had stuff like Gorilla City and you had the Cosmic Treadmill and you had the colorful rogues. So when I think of Barry, I always think of uh, I think of all that color and adventure and mystery and just excitement around the character. Uh, also, towards the end of his run, one of my favorite stories of all time is the Trial of the Flash, which uh, extends from the last 24 or so issues, where uh, the Flash actually takes the life of one of his villains and he's brought to task for it, and it ends with the end of the Barry Allen run on the Flash. Uh, if there's anything I don't like about Barry. That's a tough one. I would have to say that at times the character could be boring if not written correctly. Uh, if people banked too much on the on the sort of good guy, like easygoing police officer. Sometimes if you don't take that the right angle, it can be extremely boring. Uh, luckily, the Flash has had some really great writers, so, you know, 
when I think of Kerry Bates. Kerry Bates had problems with that for a while, but he really he flipped it around and made Barry a really interesting character. Uh, next up would be Wally West, who was originally Kid Flash, the sidekick to uh, Barry Allen, who eventually graduated into the role of being the Flash after Barry died. And uh, Wally is the one that uh, probably my favorite because. Even though I started off as a kid reading really beat up old uh, Silver Age versions of uh, of Barry Allen, the Wally character was the one that uh, you could identify easier with. It was written in a more modern style, and as a kid, it was easier to you know tie yourself to that um, and hold on to that character. Uh, the thing I love about Wally is Wally is a unique character in the fact that he. We've seen him grow up. If you're a comic book fan, you can go back and read Wally as pretty much a ten year old up to now being, you know, late 20s, early 30s, having kids. And the character progression's been really great. We've seen Wally become a reluctant hero in the, the New Teen Titans and the Wolfman run. Uh, Wally actually quit being the Flash because he wasn't sure if he wanted to be a superhero. And then you see him dragged back into the role because of the death of his father figure, Barry. And we see Wally grow up from that, from always constantly comparing himself to Barry and not being able to match up to finally sort of owning the mantle of the Flash, that he truly deserved to be the Flash. Uh, to be honest, there's not a whole lot I don't like about uh, the character of Wally. Uh, I've been a little disappointed with how his character has been treated lately, only because I think at the end of the Jeff Johns run, which is one of my favorite runs in comics, they kind of didn't know what to do with the character. And you just sort of, they got rid of him. And then they brought him back, but then they brought him back, and it doesn't seem like they have anything to do with him. Uh, it doesn't seem very urgent. Uh, I think the, his storyline's been kind of treading water for you know a couple years now, as we've been waiting for someone to really take a grab of it like Johns did. Uh, the last of the four Flashes uh, would be Bart Allen, who was originally Impulse. Uh, he is the grandson of... Barry Allen from the future, who was raised in uh, a virtual reality environment. He was always portrayed as being extremely uh, impatient and impulsive, and hence the name Impulse. Uh, when Wally disappeared, Bart took on the mantle of the Flash, and it was controversial. Uh, one of my favorite things about Bart, I actually sort of preferred his Impulse days. He was a little bit funnier. He was a uh, a little bit more interesting visually to look at because a lot of the artists were also playing around with uh, he, his facial expressions, the way he looked. He, he was always a different looking character than from all the other teen characters. Uh, if there was one thing I didn't like is I felt maybe they made him a little morose at the beginning of the, the new uh, DeMeo Bilson run. Uh, I do give Guggenheim a lot of credit for making The Flash incredibly, you know, making Bart Allen as The Flash incredibly interesting all the way up until the point when they killed him. And then I was sort of disappointed, which was surprising because at first I was like, ah, I don't want to read this sort of sad, mopey Bart who, you know, inherited the mantle of The Flash. I want to read the same Bart as before. And he managed to tie the sort of responsibility with the impulsiveness and show that Bart had grown into the role himself. So I give him a lot of credit for that. And I give Travis a lot of credit for giving me a question I say can so easily answer. So, in conclusion, uh, I love The Flash. There's nothing wrong with any of them, really. I mean, people have done fucked up stuff to them, but those are solid characters, and I think they, they should be everyone's favorite character, really. Uh, if you have any more questions, 
softball ones, hard ones, you want to know about my personal life, you want to know how much I bench press, uh, email them to Tom at Around Comics, and I will talk to you guys later. When he's not writing the continuing adventures of Catwoman, Will Pfeiffer is a DVD and movie reviewer for the Rockford Register Star. Here's Will to tell us about what's happening in DVDs. This week's top DVD release is Superbat, the hilarious summer comedy that takes a classic plot about two dorks trying to score beer and babes and manages to pack in more dick jokes than you would have thought humanly possible. Michael Sarah, star of the late lamented Arrested Development, and Jonah Hill, who played, played pretty much the same role in Knocked Up, are the dorks in question, but the cast also includes Seth Rogen and Bill Hader as either the worst cops in history or the best ones, depending on your view of law enforcement. And Christopher Mintz-Plast deserves special praise for this, his acting debut, as the already legendary McLovin. He gives movie audiences an uber geek for the 21st century. Be sure to pick up the unrated edition of Superbad, because when a movie is this filthy, you want to get as much filth as you possibly can. Also out this week is The Grindhouse Experience 2, a 20, that's right, 20 movie set that lets you experience all the wonderful sleaze of the Grindhouse era for roughly the same price as Quentin Tarantino's disappointing yak fest, Death Proof. Just check out these titles, Executioner 2, The Poseidon Explosion, Kung Fu Punch of Death, Go Kill and Come Back, and High School Hitchhikers. I haven't heard of any of these movies, much less seen them, but with titles like that, they've got to be good, right? Right? That brings us to this week's DVD cult pick, and I'm dipping back into the fabulous 50s for Invasion USA, a strange little no-budget epic about World War III. It's not to be confused with the Chuck Norris movie of the 1980s, by the way. This one takes place mostly in a bar and focuses on a creepy guy, Dan O'Herlihy, who played the old man in Robocop. Here, he talks to a colorful cast of drunks as those dirty commies attack us while our backs are turned. It's a riot of cheap footage and bad special effects, interrupted by bursts of bad acting and topped off by a twist ending that was horribly cliched even back in the 1950s. Still, it's a lot of fun, and the DVD also includes Red Nightmare, an amazing short film where Jack Webb of Dragnet fame describes what life in any town USA would be like if the Russians took over. Worst of all, the neighborhood church would be turned into a weapon museum. Those dirty commies. Well, that's the DVD report this week, comrade, and I'm Will Pfeiffer for Around Comics. You can find Will's written reviews at the Rockford Register Star by visiting go.rrstar.com and going to the entertainment section. You can also visit Will's blog at willpiper.com and remember to read Catwoman every month. That'll take care of another Monday edition of Around Comics, the Comic Culture Podcast. Make sure to come back on Thursday for Around Comics, the Comic Culture Roundtable. It's an informal and entertaining roundtable discussing the world of comics and pop culture. You can visit us online at www.aroundcomics.com. You can contact the show via email at info at aroundcomics.com. You can also visit us at MySpace and Comicspace. And if you are inclined to do so, you can leave us a review at the iTunes Music Store. 
Thank you for listening today and making Around Comics your source for the best comic book news, reviews, and opinions. We'll be back again on next Monday for another edition of Around Comics, the comic culture podcast. In the meantime, we'll be everywhere in and around comics. Yeah. Views expressed in the interviews or by guests of the show are solely those of the individuals expressing them and may not reflect the opinions of Around Comics. Any reproduction, retransmission, or rebroadcast without the express written consent of Around Comics is strictly prohibited. All content presented in this program is the sole property of Around Comics, and this has been an Around Comics production, copyright 2007. Got my love, baby, love you gone I know you didn't love it, baby I know you did me wrong, let me go